right, well, good morning, everybody. It is uh, great to have you here at the Medina East Campus of Grace. Great to see you all, for those of you who are in the room, it's good to see your faces. And of course, if you're joining us on live stream right now, uh, we are so glad that you're able to join us that way as well. So good morning to you, and uh, welcome to Grace here at the Medina East Campus. And so as we, uh, as we begin our conversation today, as we begin the message today, I actually thought I'd start by asking you a question to think about that I think is related to what we're talking about uh, here today. And so here's the question I want you to think about. Uh, what is the most meaningful and or memorable meal that you have ever shared? So I just want you to think about that with me for a minute. Um, and I know it's a big question, right? And I'm sure that, uh, that that's a huge question because you've had a lot of meals in your life. Uh, but I'm curious if you were to think about it for a while, how you might answer that question. What is the most meaningful and the most memorable meal that you've ever had, the most memorable meal you've ever shared uh, with uh, another person? And uh, I actually think it's a great question I would actually encourage you, maybe, maybe even to uh, this afternoon, if you go out to lunch with some people, maybe even use this question as a conversation starter at your table. Be real interested to hear how you might answer it. But my guess is, as you're probably thinking through this question, uh, there's probably certain meals that pop up to your mind, right? And so uh, for some of you, maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is you think of uh, certain holiday celebrations. Maybe you think of family gatherings or uh, there's certain meals growing up that have lodged themselves in your Mind Maybe for you, when you think about this question, your mind immediately goes to important relationships. And so you go to meals that kind of mark significant milestones in an important relationship. So you might think of the first date that you had with someone, or maybe you think of uh, a wedding meal that you had, or uh, maybe you think about the last meal that that baby had. I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, or maybe, you know, I'm not sure what exactly would come to your mind when you think about this question. Or maybe for you, it was actually a pretty mundane meal but uh, what made it so significant is that something happened or there was a special relationship that actually was a, a key part of that. So maybe for you, you might think about uh, the last time that you had a meal with a person who you deeply love who has since passed. And at the time, it didn't seem like it was that meaningful or memorable, but now that you look back at it, you're just really, really thankful for that meal. And I think the reason I bring this up is because I think all of us would agree, when you stop and think about it, there's actually something really significant, something really special about a meal. Uh, there, is, there is really something powerful and there's something memorable about sharing a meal together. It's interesting, anthropologists will actually look and they will say one of the consistent, one of the consistent themes that they see in all people groups, in all of history, in all of geography, is that all people throughout all humanity tend to commemorate and tend to celebrate around meals. It's just something we do. You know, if you want to celebrate a significant milestone in your life, if you want to celebrate an event, if you want to celebrate a big relationship or whatever, what do you do? You have, a, you have a meal. You share a meal. You gather around a meal. It's what we do. And anthropologists, like I said, will say that there's just something about this. There's something about sharing food together. There's something about the experience. We, we gather around meals. We celebrate around meals. And I think the truth is, for a lot of us, we really anticipate certain meals, right? So for some of us, maybe for you, you're thinking about Easter next week, and one of the things that maybe excites you is that there's a, there's a meal that you have. It's a, it's a traditional meal that you share. Maybe it's an Easter brunch. Maybe there's signature foods that are at that meal that you're already thinking of that you can almost already taste in your mouth, and you know that that's coming. I think we think about Christmas. We think about Thanksgiving, and there's certain dishes that oftentimes have emotional attachment to them. They bring us back into certain places. There's just something about food. There's something about sharing a meal together. We anticipate meals. And here's what I want to show us today. The reason I bring all this up is because today, as we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke, we are going to see a meal 
that Jesus shared with his disciples. And it is a meal, the Bible is gonna tell us, that Jesus eagerly looked forward to. It's one that he eagerly anticipated sharing with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And for sure, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Today, we're gonna talk about the Last Supper, what is famously called the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before he went to the cross, the night before he went to the cross. And this meal, the Last Supper, what it is that we're gonna be talking about here uh, today, is not only a very famous meal, but what I want you to see with me today is that it also was a deeply meaningful meal, a deeply meaningful meal, not just meaningful to Jesus' disciples back then, but it actually continues to be meaningful to Jesus' disciples today. In fact, this Friday here at Grace, uh, Pastor Kevin was just talking a little bit about Easter services next week. This Friday, we also have Good Friday services where we have a chance to together practice this meal, the Last Supper, something that we call communion. And like I said, it's not just a meaningful meal. It also is a deeply, a deeply significant meal. And so to look at this together, I actually thought um, one commentator said something I thought was really, really fascinating. And he drew this out, and this has been fascinating me ever since I've been studying this passage. Here's what he says. He says, when Jesus wanted to give his followers then and now a way of understanding what was about to happen to him, he didn't teach them a theory. Theories about how Jesus' death dealt with our sins have come and have gone throughout church history. Many of them are profoundly moving, drawing together deep spiritual insights. Now look what he says next. He says, theories have their proper place, but they weren't the main thing that Jesus gave his followers. He gave them an act to perform. Specifically, he gave them a meal to share. It is a meal that speaks more volumes than any other theory. I think this is really interesting. Think about this with me for a minute. When Jesus wants to explain the significance of his death, when he wants to describe the meaning of the cross to his disciples then and to his disciples now. He doesn't give us a theory. He doesn't give us a creed to recite. He doesn't even give us a sermon to explain the mechanics of how atonement works. What instead he gives us is he gives us a meal. He gives us a meal. And I just think that's really, really interesting. And so the question that I wanna think through together in this time is why does Jesus give us a meal to explain the cross, to explain the sacrifice that he is making on our behalf? And secondly, why does he give us this meal? Why this meal? Why the Last Supper? Why do we practice really communion? That's what I wanna talk about. So the place we're gonna look is in Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bible, I wanna invite you right now to go ahead and open with me and flip to Luke chapter 22. Uh, That, by the way, is found on page 855 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. So if you need to utilize one of our Bibles, feel free to do that. And if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take that home, uh, make it a gift from us to you. So Luke 22 is where we're gonna go. And as you're finding your way to Luke 22, I just wanna say, if you're someone who's new to grace, if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we're so glad you're here. What we've been doing is we've actually been working our way through the gospel of Luke together. So this series started all the way back at Christmas. And at Christmas, we really started with the birth of Jesus. And then we've just been working our way through the gospel of Luke, through the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the whole series will end next week with the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. So we've just kind of been journeying through Luke together. And as we've been looking at his life and we've kind of been working our way through the life and ministry of Christ, now we're gonna find ourselves in chapter 22 where Jesus is uh, taking the last supper with his, with his disciples. Okay, so we're gonna jump in here together at verse seven is where we're gonna jump in. So here we go. Luke says this. He says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. All right, so I wanna just hit pause here for a minute and I just want you to get this picture in your mind with me. So if you've been with us in this series, the Bible tells us from Luke chapter nine all the way up until chapter 19 that Jesus has resolutely had his face set on Jerusalem, that he, he has in mind a destination. He needs to get to Jerusalem. Now, when we're in chapter 22, him and his disciples have arrived. They're in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that the events that are about to transpire happen on a certain day. And look what the Bible says. It says, it was the day of unleavened bread. It was the day in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And it was the day in which they would eat the Passover. They would practice something called the Passover. Now, the reason I highlight this is because this is one of those details that I think a lot of us, if you're just reading the Bible, it's easy to read right past that and not even think twice about its significance or its meaning. However, I think these details are actually really, really, really important because they help us understand what is about to happen. The Bible says that the time in which Jesus and the disciples took the Last Supper happened to be during the meal of the Passover. Now, um, some of you have maybe studied some of the Bible before, or maybe you're a person who knows a little bit about Jewish history. But if you do, you might know this. The Passover was actually a really, really, really big deal to the Jewish people. It was a very important celebration. It happened once a year. Every year, it happened once a year. And it was what they call, it was what they actually called a pilgrimage feast. And so what that meant was that Jews from all the surrounding areas would come to Jerusalem. They would all gather into Jerusalem together. So I just want you to get this picture in your mind with me. Okay, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and it is during Passover, which means what? It means the place is packed. The streets are full. All of the hotels are booked. It is crowded. Everything is bustling. People are coming from all over the place. And the Bible tells us that they're getting ready to, to observe and to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So the Bible says, Jesus sends Peter and John, and he says, I want you guys to make preparations for us to eat the Passover meal together. So Peter and John respond, and they said, okay, Jesus, where do you want us to prepare for this meal? To which I, I don't know if this is what they were thinking, but I'm guessing Peter and John were probably thinking, okay, Jesus, you know, a little um, advanced notice might have been kind of helpful for us as we're thinking about this meal. You know, the, the town is full, everything is packed, we don't even know where to go, all the hotels are booked, all the restaurants are booked. Where are we supposed to go to prepare this meal? But it, it appears that Jesus has already made some arrangements. Because look what the Bible says in the next verse. Jesus replied, as you enter the city, as you go into Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, I, I just find this so fascinating. He says, a man carrying a jar of water is gonna meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he's gonna show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, and I want you to make preparations there. And I, I don't know about you, but when I first was reading this over the past couple of weeks, it just struck me as kind of bizarre. Uh, here's Jesus, and it's almost like, he's almost like using code words. You notice this? So he's like, go into Jerusalem, and when you see the man carrying a jar of water, right, you're gonna see a man. Follow that man down the alley, and he's gonna take you to a house. And when you get to the house, you know, knock three times on the door and say, the teacher. And, you know, it's like, it just seems so code word and so cryptic. You know, knock three times, and on the fourth knock, say, whiskey. That's the code word, and they'll let you in. And, 
And you're just like, why? And I don't know, as I was reading it, I just thought, why, why so secretive? Why does it have to be so stealth mode when you when you read this? And here's why. Here's what I think is going on. You have to remember that not only were the crowds growing in Jerusalem during this time, but also the tensions were growing between Jesus and the religious leaders. In fact, we are told right at the beginning of chapter 22 that the religious leaders were looking for an opportunity to arrest and to kill Jesus. The tensions were at a fever pitch. And so now, this is the busiest day of the year. Everyone is there in Jerusalem. Jesus can't just go waltzing out in public, right? There's, they're, they're looking for him. They're looking to arrest him and they're looking to kill him. And so he has to kind of keep it on the DL. And I think the reason that he does this is because Jesus knows he needs one last night with his disciples. He needs one last night before he goes to the cross so that he can explain to his disciples the significance of what's about to happen to him. And the way that he chooses to do this is he knows he has to have a meal with them. Now, they're not gonna understand the meaning of this meal until after he raises from the dead. But it is very important that he has this meal. And so look what happens. The Bible says that they left and they found things just like Jesus had said. And so they prepared for the Passover. Now, to prepare for the Passover actually would have been really involved. It would have included a lot of uh, preparation of food and you would have had to prepare the table and set things up that way. So this would have taken some time. So they set up for the Passover and then look what happens. When the hour came, when the time came for the Passover feast, the Bible says that Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They reclined at the table. And I actually think, just real quick, I think this is a really important little line right here that actually brings a lot of clarity to what a Passover would have been like for these guys. The Bible says that they reclined at the table. Notice it doesn't say they sat at the table. And I think this is important because I think for many of us, when we think about this meal, when we think about the Last Supper, there's a famous painting that probably most fills our imagination. You guys know which one I'm talking about, right? The one I'm talking about is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And I gotta say, this is a beautiful, amazing painting. It's actually a really, really phenomenal painting. It is historically completely inaccurate, all right? So... Um, for one thing, I, I can tell you, we can pretty much guarantee that the disciples wouldn't have all sat on one side of the table. That probably didn't happen. Uh, another thing that we know is in Jesus' time, they didn't really have upright tables, and you wouldn't sit upright in a chair. Uh, what you would do is the table was actually very low, and you would recline at the table. So especially during the Passover meal, you would actually recline on cushions. So it actually probably looks something a little bit more like this. Um, you would recline on cushions, and your feet would be away from the table, and you would kind of share the meal that way. Here's another artist rendition of what maybe that kind of looked like. So the Bible tells us that Jesus and his disciples, what they would have done is they would have reclined at the table. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. And so Jesus said to them, so as they're preparing for the meal, Jesus said, I have eagerly desired, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the reason I have this highlighted you know, some of you have different translations and it might say this. It might say, Jesus said to his disciples, I have eagerly anticipated or I have earnestly desired to share this meal with you. Here's why I think that's important. In the original Greek language, the way it reads is like this. Jesus says, I have desired with desire to have this meal with you. I have desire desired is what it literally says in the Greek. Now, what that means is in the Greek language, if you wanna emphasize something, the way that you do it is you repeat it, you repeat it. And so Jesus says, I have desire, desired. And he uses the strongest Greek word that we have for desire. What, what is the point? Here's the point. Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, I have so looked forward to, 
I have passionately anticipated to have this meal with you before I suffer. And here's what I want you to see. Here's the reason I think that's so important. As Jesus is approaching the last hours of his life, as he is approaching the cross that is coming soon, Jesus brilliantly times the last hours of his life to coincide with this very significant meal, the Passover. Jesus brilliantly, knowing that it's the last moments of his life, he sets it up in such a way that the last hours of his life coincide with the hour of the Passover. Now, why is that so important? Here's why I think this is so important. Sometimes I think when we think of the Last Supper or when we think of communion, when we take communion, sometimes we can think that that's just something that Jesus invented on the spot. But what I want you to see is that when Jesus took the, the Passover, when he took the Last Supper, when he commanded communion, that it actually is something that has deep, significant roots in something called the Passover. In fact, if I could say it this way, maybe even put it more strongly, I might put it this way. I think in order for us to fully understand the significance and the meaning of the cross and the suffering of Jesus, we have to understand something about the Passover. I think that's what Luke is trying to tell us. There's a deep connection between these things and there's an intentional connection between these things, which makes us ask the question, well, what exactly was the Passover? What exactly was the Passover? Now, again, Some of you have studied this, and some of you maybe um, have grown up in a Jewish tradition, and so you're familiar with what the Passover is. But the Passover basically is this. It is, and it was, and it still is to this day, an annual Jewish holiday that commemorates the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And so basically, it is an annual celebration that commemorates an event that happened in the history of the Jewish people, something that we call the Exodus, the Exodus. Now, if you're not familiar with that, You can read all about the Exodus in a book in the Old Testament called, can you guess? Exodus. So you can read all about the Exodus in the book of Exodus. But to put it in a nutshell, here's the Exodus story. Okay, so if you're not familiar with it, it goes something like this. So the Israelites, God's people, were in slavery for 400 years to the nation of Egypt. And so they were slaves to a guy named Pharaoh, and they worked as slave laborers, and they were harshly treated. And the Bible tells us that after 400 years of slavery, the Israelites cried out to God and they said, God, could you deliver us from the slavery? So God heard their prayer and he sent a deliverer in a guy named Moses. And so if you've ever, some of you guys have seen movies about this and you, you might, you, maybe you've seen this kind of thing. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God says, okay, here is a series of plagues to convince you to let my people go. And after each plague, Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let your people go. But then he reneges and he takes it back and and the Israelites remain in slavery in Egypt. And all of this culminates onto one particular night, which is called the night of the Passover. And on the night of the Passover, what happens is God sends a final plague to strike down the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And so he says, I'm gonna send this plague. It's the final plague. And God commands his people, the Israelites. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to find a pure and spotless lamb. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb. I want you to slaughter that lamb. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to paint it on the doorposts of your house, just like this. And he says, then this evening, when the judgment of the Lord comes through, when, when the Lord sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, he will pass over that house. And so literally, you will be saved and you'll be rescued by the blood 
of the lamb. And so the Bible says that this is exactly what happens. Now, interestingly, in Exodus chapter 12, you can read all about this, God commands his people on that night. He says, I want you every year to set up a celebration and set up a feast that is a perpetual memorial that reminds you of how I liberated you this evening. And that was the beginning of the Passover. Now, Passover continued on up until even this day. So for centuries and centuries and centuries, the Jewish people have practiced this meal called a Passover. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they would have been Jewish people, right? And so they would have grown up practicing this meal. And so when Jesus says, I've been looking forward to having Passover with you, this was something that they all grew up and they all would have looked forward to sharing together. It was the Passover meal. Now, I just gotta say, if you've, I don't know if any of you have ever been part of a Passover, they call it a Passover Seder. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you have actually been part of one of these before? Okay, a lot of you guys have. If you've never been part of a Passover Seder, I gotta tell you, they are really, really interesting. Uh, They are um, highly symbolic, and they're very, very, very kinesthetic, meaning it gets all of your senses and all of your, your, your kind of, your, your, it's very tactile. It gets all of your senses involved. I actually thought this was so fascinating. I actually think it's really helpful to understanding what Jesus is about to say next. But as I was studying this, here's how a basic traditional Passover meal would have looked. Okay, I just think this is so fascinating. So here's how it would have began. A Passover meal would begin with everyone who's participating reclining at the table. Okay, so you would have a table, just like we said. There'd be cushions around the table, and then you would come and you would recline at the table together. Once everyone was there, the whole family was there, all the participants were there, then the presider of the meal, who typically was the head of the household, would get up and he would take a cup. So this is how it started. He'd take a cup of wine and he'd pronounce a blessing. He would pronounce, he would give thanks and pronounce a blessing and you would drink the cup, and that would be the beginning of the Passover feast. It'd be the Passover meal. After this happened, what happened in a traditional Passover is the youngest at the table, so typically it'd be the kids, right, would ask a question. And the question they would ask is, why is this night different than every other night? Why is this night different than all other nights? And what would happen is that would launch an explanation. And the explanation and the meal would actually be structured into four parts. So there was four parts to a Passover meal. Each part was signaled by another cup and another blessing. So there's four parts in which they would explain the Passover story and each part would be signaled by another cup and another blessing. That's what they would do. Now, I just thought this was so cool. The youngest throughout the meal would ask four additional questions and they would use symbolic foods to retell the story. So I just thought this was so cool. Here's the four questions that they would ask. So the first question they would ask is they would say, on all other nights, we either leavened bread or matzah. So why on this night do we only eat matzah? Why do we just eat matzah? And so basically, if you've never had matzah before, uh, matzah is a kind of bread. It's an unleavened bread, which means it's made without yeast. That's what it means. And it looks like this. You can actually go buy it at Bueller's today if you want to. I almost bought some here today because I was just really interested. And uh, if you've ever had it before, it tastes like a cracker. It's basically just, you know, like super, super um, crispy and, and that kind of thing. And so they'd ask this question. And when they asked this question, the presider of the meal would say something like this. He would say, well, the reason that we eat matzah is because it reminds us that on the night of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, that our ancestors had to leave urgently. And so they didn't have time to make bread with yeast. They didn't have time to let the yeast rise. And so they made bread in a hurry. 
and they made bread without yeast, and that's why we eat matzah. It reminds us that our ancestors had to get out quickly. And so see what they're doing? They're reliving, they're recapitulating the story. Then they would ask a second question. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs. Why on this night do we eat bitter herbs? And so on the table, there would be two specific kind of herbs that were there. They both were very, very bitter and very, very tart. So one of them is called carpus. And if you've never had carpus before, it's basically like this really, really salty, watery solution. And you would take either lettuce or a piece of celery and you would dip it in there and you would eat it. And the other one is something called maror. And if you've never heard of maror, it is literally just straight up crushed horseradish. You guys ever have just straight horseradish before? Whew, it tastes like, um, tastes like wasabi. It's like that. It's just like, whoa, it's kind of like that, right? And so then they would explain this, and then they would ask the next question. The next question was, on all other nights, we, do, we, we, we don't dip herbs. Why on this night do we dip them twice? And this would lead to the whole table practicing this together. And so they would start with the carpus, and they would dip it into the salt water, and they would take it, and they would eat it. And I want you just to imagine this with me a minute, okay? Imagine that you have, that you have like the saltiest substance you can imagine. Imagine that. And imagine that you're eating that right now. Just imagine. Show me what your face would do. Show me your salty face. What are you doing? Yeah, look at your neighbor and show him your salty face. Right, something like this. And, and, and the kids would say, why are we doing this? And they would, then they would tell the story. And they would go something like this. They would say, the reason we eat this is because it reminds us of the tears of slavery that our ancestors would have cried. And it was a way of them remembering that and bringing that in. And then they would take the maror. They would take the maror. And I actually thought, you know, I actually want to do the whole meal with us. I thought that'd be kind of fun. But I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do the maror. So I got some. And I thought what I would do is I would just eat some in front of you and just show you what it does to your face. Why do you eat this? But you know what I actually thought would be more fun than that is I actually thought it might be fun if some of you would join me. So um, are there, can I have a, few, a couple people who'd be willing to come up here and eat some, yep, get up here. Yep, get up here. Yep, get up here. Okay. Yeah, let's go. Come on, all of you. Come on, let's go. Let's go. I have enough for all of us. So, okay, let's do some roar together. So we're going to do it together. Okay, so take, take a piece and then pass it around. Okay, you guys ready for this? Now, by the way, before we take this, you guys know what you're getting yourself into, right? Okay, you've had horseradish. Take a piece and pass it around. Okay, so we're going to do it on the count of three, so don't eat it just yet, all right? And I want all of you to watch our faces when this happens. So this is straight crushed horseradish. That's what this is. And I want you to get get a healthy scoop. I mean, like, go for it. Go big. No, no, more. Go. Come on. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay, all right, Brenda. Not yet. Now just hold on to it. Okay, you got it? Good. Okay, good. All right, good, good, good. All right, let's try this together. This is going to be good. All right, you ready? Don't do it just yet. Just hang on to it. Okay, get a nice, come on, Sam, let's go big. Oh, come on. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Okay. All right, okay, good. All right, we got, all right, and one more. Okay, now wait, we'll do it on the count of three. There we go. Okay, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> Oof. Oof. How's that feel? <laughs> Get off the stage if you're going to throw up. <laughs> Jeez. Oh. oh, man. All right. Thank you guys very much. If you need to, thank you. Thanks so much. It's awesome. Oh, man.
I've had to do that three times now. Gosh. So you would take the, oh, gosh. Hang on a second. I'm sorry. Just, I got to blow my nose for a minute. Just, just talk amongst yourselves for a second. Oh, man. That's rough. I, I was telling them last night, I'm like, I hope that only burns once. Because that is, poof, it's brutal. So anyway, so, so you would take the maror. And then afterwards, they would say, why did we take the maror? And then they would basically say, the reason we take the maror is it reminds us of the bitterness that our ancestors would have felt when they were in slavery. And you see what they're doing. They're, they're reliving, they're retelling the story of their ancestors and their feeling. And then they'd ask the final question. On all other nights, we eat sitting or reclining on pillows. Why on this night do we eat only reclining on pillows? So why are we laying down and having this meal? And then they would basically say this. They would say the reason we recline on pillows is because when we were slaves, we had to eat standing up. We had to eat on the job. But now we are reminded of the, slave, of the slavery that has been broken and the freedom that is ours because of what God has done. And then they would eat the lamb. And it was a reminder that their freedom was purchased because of the lamb who allowed them to go free. Now, I want you to keep all this in mind, okay? Because I think when you go back into the story in Luke 22, suddenly it's gonna start making a lot of things make sense of what Jesus is saying. So look what happens. Jesus said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. I've looked forward to this meal with you. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, now I want you to stop here with me for a minute. Jesus takes the cup as the presider of the meal and he pronounces a blessing of thanks, just like everyone would have done centuries and centuries leading up to this moment, just like they had been used to. But I want you to see that the moment that Jesus begins to open his mouth after this, he begins to say things that would have absolutely astonished the disciples, things they had never heard said at a Passover. Look what he says. Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I want you to see something interesting. Jesus says about the Passover, I won't eat this again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And I imagine the disciples are going, wait, what what, what, did you say? The, the, The Passover has yet to find its, no, 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 Jesus, the Passover is about something that happened in the past. It's not about something that is still yet to come. And if that wasn't enough, look what happens next. The Bible says he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He took the matzah, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then he said to them, this is the bread of our ancestors. This is the bread that reminds us of the affliction of our ancestors. Is that what Jesus said? Now, look what Jesus says. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of our ancestors, no, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, this is the cup of a new covenant in not the blood of the lamb, in my blood, which has been poured out for you. I think it's hard for us to appreciate the audacity of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus just said, the Passover is about me. That's what he said. You guys have to understand, this was something that the Jewish people had practiced for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, and Jesus comes in and says, yeah, it's actually all about, it's actually all about me. You guys, just just imagine this for me for a minute. This is a silly analogy, but I want you to imagine that it's December of this year, 
and I get up sometime in December on the stage, and I say, hey, you guys, I know that on the 25th of December, we typically celebrate the birth of a very special person, but I want you to know uh, that not anymore. It's different. Now we're going to celebrate me. And so on December 25th, it's going to be about me, and we're going to have Tony Eve services the night before, and so you guys can all come out. I want you to get a Tony tree and decorate it and put presents underneath it. Now, um, if I did something, by the way, if I ever do anything like that, let me just tell you right now, don't walk, run, run from this place. Something has gone terribly wrong if that happens. But here's my point. How audacious would that be if I said something like that? You guys, even more so, Jesus is standing here and he says, you guys, this is all about me. In other words, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is that he has come to bring about another exodus, that he has come to bring out a truer and greater and even better exodus, that what we read about in Exodus actually finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Guys, tell you something I think is really cool. Um, as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, commentators will talk about how there's major themes throughout the Gospel of Luke. And one of the major themes that commentators point out is that Luke tells the story of Jesus as a second form of an Exodus. I just wanna show you something I thought was really cool. In Luke 9, the Bible says that Jesus has this experience where he goes up onto a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. If you've never read this account, it's one of the trippiest scenes in the whole Bible. And the Bible says that Jesus takes a couple of his disciples and they go up on this mountain and he transfigures into this glorious nature. And the Bible says in that moment, two men, Moses and Elijah, appear. And they, they're there in glorious splendor and they start talking with Jesus. Okay, so imagine this. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are all on top of the mountain and they start talking. Now, what do they talk about? What are those three guys talking about? And look what the Bible says. They spoke about Jesus's departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, I just need to tell you that this is actually where it really helps to have the Greek. Because in the Greek, do you know what the word departure is? Literally, the word departure is this word, exodus. What, were they, what was Jesus talking to Moses about? The exodus, but not the one that Moses did, the one that was gonna be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And then the Bible tells us, 20 verses after, that from that moment forward, Jesus resolutely set his sights for Jerusalem. What is this trying to tell us? Luke is basically telling us that we cannot fully understand, we cannot fully appreciate the cross without understanding something about the Exodus and understanding something about the Passover. Because you see, you see, at the Passover, God rescues the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh through the sacrifice of the lamb. But you see, at the cross, God rescues the world from its slavery to sin and death through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the basic plot line of the Passover and he swaps out all the players. He changes all the players. And here's what I, want, I think we need to see. This meal is not just about ancient history. This meal is not just about something that God did back then. This meal, according to Jesus, is about what God is doing for the whole world. It's about what he's doing for you and it's about what he's doing for me. See, because here's what I think it's telling us. When God looks at humanity, when God looks at all of us, when he looks at humanity, he sees a deeper slavery inside of every single one of us. When God looks at the world, he doesn't simply see a slavery of uh, ethnic slavery or a national slavery or an economic slavery or a slavery that's caused by war. All of those things are real, but he sees a deeper slavery 
that causes all other forms of slavery. And what is the slavery that God sees when he looks at humanity? Here's what it is. He sees sin. He sees, he sees sin. He sees the slavery of greed and selfishness and self-centeredness and lust and pride. He sees the slavery that exists inside of each and every single one of us. And it's that slavery, it's that deeper slavery of sin that causes all other forms of slavery that creates the kind of world that we live in. And so God is concerned with freeing us and liberating us from that. And that's why Jesus comes. It's a new exodus. It's a new Passover that he gives to us. And so the question is, why did he give us a meal? Why, did he, why this meal did Jesus use to describe the meaning of the cross? Well, I think he's trying to show us that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Why does Jesus say, this is my body and this is my blood? Because he's trying to show us that he is the fulfillment of what the Passover feast was pointing to that he is the true Passover lamb who is given for us. You see, Jesus wasn't just executed at the cross. He was sacrificed. He was given, freely given, for the atonement of the whole world. I think the other thing that it shows us is, you know, the, the New Testament authors are gonna pick up on this. The apostle Paul's gonna say stuff like this, for Christ is our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. Peter's gonna say this, you are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect. Do you understand that the New Testament authors understood the significance of the cross in the same way, using the same terms that we see here in this passage? I think the other thing this shows us is it shows us that Jesus has ushered in the new covenant, the new covenant. Now, I know that's weird for us. The word covenant is so weird to us, we don't really understand what it means, but it actually is just a relational contract. That's what a covenant is. And what this reveals to us is that Jesus has come to usher in a new arrangement a new way for us to interact with God that is different than the old way. And I gotta tell you, when Jesus says that he has come to usher in not a new covenant, but the new covenant, if you look at Luke 22, Jesus says this is the blood of the new covenant. He is referring to something very specific. And what's he referring to? Something that the Old Testament had talked about 600 years before Jesus even walked the earth. Jeremiah 31 says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm gonna make a new covenant. There's going to be a new arrangement. There's gonna be a new way to interact with God. And how's it gonna work? We're gonna make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah, and it's not gonna be like the old covenant, like the old one that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and I led them out of Egypt. So what happened with Moses, it's gonna be different than that this time. There's gonna be a new covenant. Why? Because they broke that one because they couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep the laws. They couldn't keep the ceremonies. They couldn't do it. I was a husband to them, but they were unfaithful to me, says the Lord. But I'm gonna make a new covenant. What's that gonna be like? This is the covenant I'm gonna make with the people of Israel, declares the Lord. I'm gonna put my law in their minds. I'm gonna write it on their hearts, and I'm gonna be their God, and they're gonna be my people. How is that possible? Here's how. I'm gonna forgive their wickedness, and I'm gonna remember their sins no more. I'm gonna create a way to blot out their sins. And Jesus comes and he says, I have come to bring a new covenant. I am the true Passover lamb. And there is now a new way that you can connect with God. And it's no longer through the rituals and the laws of the Old Testament and adherence to those things. It's now through my son. It's through Jesus. It's through faith in him. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to remember the significance of the cross, what does he give them? He doesn't give them a creed. He doesn't give him a sermon. He doesn't give him a lecture. What does he give him? 
gives him a meal. And he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And I just gotta tell you, personally, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think it's actually really meaningful and really powerful that Jesus gives us a meal. And why is that? Well, there, there's a whole lot of reasons that quite honestly still mystify me. But here's a few things that I was thinking about. First off, did you ever think about this? A meal is received. Why did Jesus give us a meal? Why didn't he give us a creed to recite? Why did he give us a meal to partake in? I think here's part of the reason, because a meal is received. You know, you don't, to be nourished by a meal, you don't just believe in a meal. You don't just intellectually ascend or intellectually agree with a meal. Like, if I, if I sat you down at a meal and I put a plate in front of you, you wouldn't just sit there and go, yes, I agree that that's chicken, and then stand up and walk away. Like, you don't do that, right? What do you, what do, you do? You take it in to yourself. You personalize it. You digest it. You bring it into yourself and you allow it, listen, you allow it to empower you and animate you. you and and I, think, I think the reason that Jesus says, I want you, when you remember the cross, I don't just want you to recite intellectual facts that you agree with about the cross. I want you to personalize it. I want you to rely on it. I want you to take it in. I want you to symbolically I want you to digest it and allow it to inform and animate the way that you operate and you move in the world. You know, we say this all the time, you are what you eat. What do we mean by that? We mean that what you ingest physically is what creates who you are in your body. And I think what we're saying is this, is that when you take in the cross, when you take in the meaning and significance of your life, it begins to to animate the way that you live your life. It starts to dictate your attitudes and your interactions with other people. So part of why Jesus tells us to take communion is because communion is something that you receive, not just something that you believe. Here's another thing. Do you ever think about this? A meal is revisited. You return to a meal. You come back to it. That's one of the great things about meals, isn't it? Like you don't just say, yeah, I ate 10 years ago. I'm good. You gotta keep coming back. You gotta return to it. You have to revisit it. I think one of the reasons Jesus gave us a meal is because we need to come back to it. We need to revisit it. Now, let, I want you to hear me clearly. What I am not saying, I am not saying that Jesus' sacrifice was not, was not in itself sufficient and that we need to keep coming back so that we can stay current with our forgiveness of our sins. Some people teach that. I think that's entirely inaccurate. So the reason that we return to communion isn't because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. I think the reason we return to communion is because we often drift and forget that it was. And so we have to come back over and over again. Why? Because we drift, because we forget. This is why Jesus says, you should do this in remembrance of me. And by remembrance, I don't think he means that you just recall information. I think he means you do this in memorial of me. You bring this into the center of your consciousness. You think about, you digest, you allow what happened to, to, to work itself out in, in all of the implications of what that means in your life and your connection with God. So what do we do? We remember, we remember it. We come back, we revisit it. And by the way, can I just say, I think this is the brilliance of God. I don't think there's a better way to remember something than to attach it to a meal. There is no better way to commemorate something than attach it to a meal. I actually just thought this was super fascinating. I was doing some study and there's actually a class that came out recently from Boston University and it's called The Anthropology of Food. And basically it ties together the food culture with neuroscience. And what they pointed out in this class, I thought to myself, I thought, man, to me, that just displays the brilliance of our creator. 
I just think it does, because I want you to, this is what, what they say in the course. They said, aspects of our personal narratives, that is the stories that we tell about ourselves, are most intensely and emotionally recalled and potentially relearned through memories that are associated with moments of taste, smell, sound, and touch. Kinesthetic, right? Our brain's emotion centers, on, our brain's emotion centers are nearest to the brain's taste and smell processing centers. And so it's undeniable that our understandings of self are interrelated to these senses and that food experiences have great association with them. Do you see what they're saying? A really, really smart way, here's what they're saying. They're saying our creator created us in such a way that we have a brain, and in our brain, the place where our emotion and our memory sits is right next to where our taste and our smell and our touch is. And so why is that significant? That is why certain smells, when you smell them, can bring you right back to certain events that happen in your life. This is why when you taste that food that you have every Thanksgiving meal, you're like, oh, that always reminds me of this. Why is that? It's because God created our minds in such a way that those things are interconnected. So isn't it brilliant that when Jesus says, I want you to remember the meaning and significance of the cross, he ties it to a meal. He ties it to a meal. And I think the last thing is this. A meal is shared. I think the reason that he commanded us to take a meal is because a meal draws us together. A meal unifies us. A meal is where a very diverse people come around a common center and share in a common experience. I think one of the most beautiful pictures that you see in communion is here is a group of disciples of Jesus, very, very different, but they're all centered on and unified by the sacrifice and by the example of Jesus Christ and the giving of his life. And so I think that Jesus looks and he says, I want you to take this meal and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Mess the band to come up and um, as they do, I, you know, some of you might be hearing this, you might be thinking to yourself, this is all fascinating and it's interesting and you know, I learned a lot about culture and that was kind of fun. But like, <clears throat> what does this have to do with anything? Like what, what, what is the application? What, what should I do with a sermon like this? And can I just tell you, I actually think the application is right there in the passage. I think it's actually super easy. I think the application is this. Take the meal. Do this in remembrance of him. Practice communion. I think that's the takeaway. And I know some people who've been part of grace here, or maybe you're new to grace, will often ask the question, and they'll say, you know, how do you guys practice communion here? Do you guys practice communion at grace? Because we don't really ever seem to take it on the weekend settings like this. And you're right, we don't really ever take it in the weekend settings like this. And I think that there's some reasons for that that you'll understand here in just a moment. But here at Grace, there's a couple ways that we practice communion. Uh, one of them is we practice communion in our life groups. And actually, I believe that life groups is one of the greatest environments to actually get to the heart of what communion is all about, is to share that meal together with other people who are committed to following Jesus. So I think if you're not con connected to a life group, it's even more incentive to do that. However, there's something else that we do here at Grace, and periodically we will have a, a group communion where we will come together collectively and we'll share communion together. That's happening this Friday during Good Friday services. And I would just encourage you as an application of this message to maybe come and take this meal. Now, I will tell you, if you come, we do communion a little different than some people maybe grew up with. And so when you come, what you can expect is we will sing, we'll do worship together, We'll do the bread in the cup and we'll have explanation around that. One of the things that we practice here in our communion is we do something called a foot washing. Some of you are like, for real? And I'm like, yep, for real. And so uh, we encourage families to wash each other's feet, husbands and wife to wash each other's feet, 
brothers and sisters in Christ to wash each other's feet. And the reason we do that, again, highly kinesthetic. It's to remind us not just of the cross itself, but also the way the cross informs us to live, which is one of sacrificial love and servanthood for each other. So we, we have a chance to do that. And then we do something called a love feast. And we actually encourage people to go from this place and go and practice a feast where you can love on each other and talk about uh, some of the significant things that we had encountered in communion. And so I would encourage you, come and check it out. If you're someone who's investigating Jesus, can I even encourage you, come and check it out. I think there's a lot of power in it. Now I will tell you, the bread and the cup is specifically for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. But I would encourage you, if you're investigating Jesus, to come and see it. Just come and watch. You can observe. You can just sit in the back if you want to. But I think there's something powerful about God's people coming together and being united in these ways. All right, so the bread and the cup. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, I just wanna say thank you that you're so loving to us, that you're, such, that you're so kind, that even on the evening before your crucifixion, that you were thinking about us and that you were thinking about ways that you could help us understand and digest and take in the sacrifice that was about to happen the next day. So Father, as the, as the cross is on our minds and our hearts this week, being Holy Week and us thinking about the things that we're commemorating, I ask you that the cross itself would just not just fill our minds, but fill our hearts. I pray that we think through the sacrifice that was made on our behalf that introduced a new covenant, a new way for us to relate to you. For those of us who follow you, we're so thankful for that. God, for those who are investigating you, I pray that even today they would see that this is for them, to put their faith and trust and belief in you. And Father, we eagerly await and we anticipate the resurrection that we get to celebrate next week. And so Father, as we have a chance to worship and sing right now, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude. Let our songs be an expression of our thankfulness for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.